Welcome back to Two Seats of the Bar, everybody. My name is Shale Sage. I'm here with my co-host, Debbie Davis. Hello, everybody. So today we are talking all about ciders. Ciders. We had a great time um, researching this. We went to Wilson's Orchard and were blown away. Magical place. Um, I, I can't wait to get into the show here more, but um, like... I'm just in love with cider now. Like, I think I should, all, I think I want to put it on tap at my home. That's what I want. I love so. cider too. <laughs> and like, I've, I've loved cider, especially craft cider for years, but I've, I've been a huge cider fan. And now after doing all of this research and going to see how it's made locally, I'm just blown away by the beverage. It's, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I would have never, I never realized the, the complexities and like all the, all the hard work that goes into making ciders until I start researching for this show. So absolutely. Um, without further ado, um, we are going to throw it to Debbie to talk about the history of ciders. Bum bum bum. Mm. So the history of apple hard apple cider specifically is a long one that dates back to 60 BC. It involves multiple countries and is overall dependent on the geography of the apple. The ancient beverage has become a traditional drink in many European countries and was incredibly important to America pre-prohibition. And because it has a long history and it's filled with so many interesting stories, we're going to focus specifically on England, France, and the United States. So the first actual documentation of apples being fermented and people drinking cider was made by the Romans after their conquest into Britain in 55 BC. It was probably being done long before that as apples... Uh, prefer the cooler climates of Western Europe and Britain. So it's it's been a form of agriculture that's been along for a very long time. But no one was really writing anything down um, up until that point. So what followed was a time of occupation and, and waves of invasions um, in England. And once this all settled around 600 AD, Christianity was reestablished and the monasteries began cultivating apple orchards. By the 9th century, several monasteries were producing cider, and most homesteads and manors also had their own orchards, pressed their own apples, and made hard cider. It became a regular practice for orchard workers to receive a daily allowance of cider as a part of their wages. From the 13th to the 17th centuries, it was far safer for people to drink cider rather than the unsanitary water, and about... By the end of the 17th century, almost half of the population received some portion of their wages in cider, um, which I think goes to show like the importance of the beverage. Like it was, like, replace like it replaced money in some circumstances. Um, in the 17th and 18th century, the consideration of taste began to develop when it came to cider as a finished product. Really thinking about like where it came from and how it was made, um, and. 1645, a gentleman named Samuel Hartlib wrote in his Discourse of Husbandry that he felt that the apples that were used were of poor quality and that some lessons could be learned from regions like France and Spain and how they selected their apples. So it was really looking at starting to, the, the country was starting to look at as opposed to what we can do with what we've got, like what can we, how can we improve upon this beverage? Um, and then uh, almost a century later, in 1796, D. Marshall uh, wrote the rural economy of, pardon my pronunciation if it's incorrect, Gloucestershire, where he criticized how apples were harvested. 
At the time, men would walk through the orchards with these long poles called polting lugs. They would beat down the apples, and women would gather them in baskets and take them to the press. Marshall felt that, quote, fruit in all human probability does not quit the tree until it has received its full complement of nourishment. He also had issues with the way that cider was being fermented, and at the time it was open-air fermentation, and he liked what Americans had been up to with their closed-lid copper kettles. So as these improvements were being suggested and made and, and new techniques and equipment experimented with, the English Industrial Revolution crept in and brought about bigger production facilities, making what farm lovers called factory cider. All the while this was happening, farmers experienced a bout of canker, which is a disease that causes the tree bark to rot and die. All of this um, was kind of a culmination into moving towards a more industrialized form of cider making in England. Now, cider making in France dates back to the 6th century. Most of France cultivated grapes and made wine. However, apples grew much more heartily in Normandy and Brittany. And this is still true today. Um, what's different about the French is they prefer a sweeter uh, cider apple, and they use a different sort of fermentation process known as keeving. Um, so the more common way of making cider is to press apples and immediately extract the juice. With keeving, you press the apples and let them sit for 24 hours, and the apples brown and release a substance known as pectin. And it's a jelly-like substance that's used as a thickening agent um, in jams and jellies, um, but it coagulates in the cider-making process, too, so it, it floats to the top of the tank, creating this like many inches thick gel-like layer. And it rises up and takes sediment and yeast with it while heavy particles drop to the bottom. The juice in the middle is what's extracted and then fermented, and in the process, the yeast is purposefully halted by limiting, limiting the amount of nutrients it receives. So it results in a more like naturally sweet drink. It is time-consuming compared to the more common method of cider production. Some places can turn a cider around in a week. Some can take three to four weeks if they prefer a cooler fermentation style. Keeving takes three to six months. What results from the keeving fermentation process is a astringent, more tannic bite that is or akin to wine, like with a fuller, thicker body and an earthy, medicinal, soft, complex beverage. France also has very specific requirements for what they define as cider. In the UK, cider must contain 35% apple juice. The US requires 50, and in France, it must be 100%. However, much like England, these standards weren't explored and perfected upon until the 19th to 20th centuries. Now, we'll hop across the pond, and around 1620, English settlers on the east coast of this country decided they didn't like the crab apples native to the land, and so they shipped over apple seeds from England. The soil of that area isn't great for growing barley for beer, but it was great for cultivating orchards for cider making. By the turn of the 18th century, New England produced 300,000 gallons of cider a year. And by the end of the 19th century, most homesteads had their own orchard. Now, obviously, um, apples have many qualities one would find useful on the farm. It's not just about cider. You can eat them, you can bake them, you can jam them. You can allow the cider to turn into vinegar for all its wonderful properties, specifically pickling, ensuring the longevity of other foods. Cider making and drinking was, however, the simplest, easiest, cheapest, and most plentiful form of drink at the time. This was also in part thanks to a man named John Chapman, also known as Johnny Appleseed. 
not just a subject of folklore. He was a church missionary, but also really loved apples and would travel around spreading the word of the gospel as well as apple seeds in places like all the way into Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Illinois. And he would help landowners plant nurseries with seeds um, and would return every year or two to make sure that the apples were doing all right. This was, he set out on his quest in about 1790 and died around 1845. Just going to get a time frame of that. Um, Politicians in this country also love cider as well. It was supposedly sold and consumed during the Battle of Concord, the Revolutionary War. When George Washington was running um, for the House in Virginia, he campaigned. Uh, his campaign served 144 gallons of cider, which is an act known as swilling the planters with bumbo, getting voters in a more favorable state before voting, a practice that was pretty common at the time. Um, John Adams, Ben Franklin, William Henry Harrison, they all had a fondness for the drink and, cl- and claimed that many political elections and events were highlighted and even brought to you by cider. Now, as settlers began to spread in the Midwest in the early 1900s, the cider love began to wane. With the arrival of immigrants from Germany and Eastern Europe, alongside came the cultural love of beer. The Midwest areas uh, where they settled had a better kind of soil for barley and wheat, so opened breweries like Pabst in 1844 and Schlitz in 1849. With the first mechanical refrigeration patent in 1899, it became much easier to ship and store beer in a more industrialized nation versus the old farm days of cider making. Then Prohibition and the Volstead Act came in and nearly wiped out American cider. Not only did it outlaw alcoholic cider, but it also limited the production of sweet cider to 200 gallons a year per orchard. Apple trees that were cultivated specifically for the making of hard cider were even ordered to be burned down. And this actually influenced the kind of apples that the country grew for years and years to come afterwards. Cider and all of its different variations and styles have evolved over time based off of the ingredients available where and when, the different types of methods, and the local tastes of the populations consuming it. Thank you for that history lesson, Debbie. Uh, I know that there is a lot of stuff that you wanted to cover, um, but for the sake of time, um, we can't get to everything today. So I'm going to jump right into where ciders are today and uh, why you need to visit your local cidery. When talking about the modern day relevance of craft ciders today, we can't ignore one big name, Woodchuck. Starting out from a winery in Proctorsville, Vermont in 1991, an ironically named Greg Failing started making a cider called Woodchuck Amber. This tasty, slightly sweet beverage was the first US made hard cider as As Debbie touched on earlier, as we've said before, Prohibition killed a lot of things in the States, and cider was possibly hit the hardest. So when Failing decided to make a mass-produced cider, he was pretty revolutionary, as all of the hard ciders that were in the U.S., such as Magners and Strongbow, were imported. Over the years, Woodchuck stormed the cider market, taking over the lion's share of cider consumed in the States. Nowadays, things are a little more competitive. We've come a long way from only having one cidery. Sources are a little inconsistent as to the number of cideries nowadays, but from our research, it looks like there's at least 700 cideries in the United States, and possibly up to 150 wineries, breweries, and meaderies that are also making cider. It's worthy to note that most of these cideries have popped up in the past three to five years. Woodchuck is also no longer the king of ciders. That title belongs to Sam Adams and their Angry Orchard line. So what happened? 
What spurred this 700% growth in cideries? Why have ciders become so popular? Unfortunately, there's no one answer. And this is where I get on my soapbox and preach why ciders are so lovely and so relatable as a product. But before I delve into why cider is so awesome and why everybody should be drinking it, I have to acknowledge one thing, one unproven anecdotal thought on the reason why ciders became so popular, the gluten-free trend. Celiac is a disease uh, that is certainly real. I know people with it, I understand how it works, and I understand the consequences of somebody consuming gluten. But for some reason, eating gluten-free is not just for celiacs anymore, much to your server's dismay. It's become something that many Americans partake in. I wouldn't doubt that you could go into any supermarket and find a gluten-free section. Even big restaurant chains have gluten-free markers, or even full sections on the menu that are gluten-free. Now what does that have to do with ciders? Naturally, ciders are gluten-free. If you look at the, at the jump in the sale of ciders, and the jump in the amount of people jumping on the gluten-free bandwagon, it makes sense. There's a few things that happen, such as uh, Miley Cyrus coming out with the fact that she has a gluten allergy. The famous Gwyneth Paltrow, the champion of unproven alternative medicine, starts to weigh in on gluten-free diets. And the book that everyone on this diet has probably read, Wheat Belly by Dr. William Davis, comes out. Shortly after these events is when the diet takes off, and coincidentally, ciders start to boom. Now that I've got that off my chest, we can get onto the nerdy, multifaceted soapbox on why ciders are so amazing, and why you should definitely support your local cidery as often as you can. Do you like beer? Do you like wine? If you enjoy either of those products, cider is for you. Cider is probably closer to beer and flavor while being made like and having all of the terroir of wine. Cider bridges the gap between the two camps which some people are stubbornly firm on staying in. It's a light and crisp beverage with a variety of flavors and many different styles, as Debbie touched on before. Cider is what can bring craft drink beer drinkers and experienced wine drinkers together. For a moment, I want to talk about the experience of going to a new brewery or winery, why it's lovely, and why visiting your cidery is just as much, if not more fun. When you visit a brewery for the first time, there's a magic to it. You walk in, look at the extensive list of offerings, talk to a friendly bartender across a beautiful wooden bar. He welcomes you, asks you where you're from, maybe you order a flight if you have time, or you just get a beer to take on your tour. You've only seen the facade. You haven't yet seen the machine, the guts, the inner workings of the brewery. You meet up with your tour guide. You're in a group of maybe five to ten people who are also enjoying that beautiful beverage. Then you walk through a set of industrial-looking doors, going from charming, wel welcoming bar area to a facility lined with stainless steel monsters. Sweaty brewers and water are everywhere. Whether the person is the owner, a brewer, a comedian, or just does tour guides, there's a feeling you get when you take a tour behind the scenes. It gives you that connection that you're looking for. You get to learn all about the great things that this brewery has and is doing. It's cute little startup story, starting from a small two two garage door brewery founded by two people in a dream, and boom, 10 years later, they're brewing beer for your whole state. They talk about how they get their grain and their hops from local farmers, and how they give their spent grain back to the local farmers. Then the tour ends. You buy a t-shirt, maybe a case of beer to go home with you. You just created a great memory and a great connection with that brewery. It's a similar story with a winery. You go in and walk up to the counter or bar, and you tell them that you're here for a tasting with six other friends that you've bought al brought along. You also start out with a quick tour of the vineyard, talking with the vintner about why he grows what grapes, what the soil content is like, and when they pick the grapes. The vintner dresses like a farmer, but has an air about him, a confidence that wine is going to be wonderful. He briefly walks you past the fermentation bank, 
tanks and giant wooden vats used for gently aging his Pinot Noir. Then he walks you down to the cellar underground, surrounded by more bottles than one person could consume in a lifetime, and he starts cracking open bottles for you to taste. They're all wonderful and bright, and maybe something you don't actually like, but you're doing a private tasting where everything tastes better. You buy a few of his vintages to take home, and you continue on your merry way. Now, visiting a cidery was somewhat of a spiritual experience for me. I was very excited my first time, driving through the metal gates, passing through the decrepit barn, and parking on a beautiful hill. But as soon as I stepped outside, my nerves were instantly calmed as the smell of fresh fruit, bread, and the country air melded together in what I can only describe as magical. First, a tour of the facilities where the apples are stored, the smell of freshly baked pies and turnovers flowing throughout the building. We taste some apples, the Lodi variety if I remember correctly, and we're promptly taught that all apples have a different purpose. Some are meant to be eaten on their own, some are perfect for applesauce, some make great pies, and yes, some make great hard ciders. I feel like there's a life lesson in the fact that some apples, yes, even the bad ones, can all be useful and have a place. Afterwards, we go to visit the new taproom and restaurant, which is beautifully placed in the valley, giving you the sense that this is a place that you could spend the whole day. We tour the taproom and meet up with the owner, a fifth-generation fruit farmer. We later learn that out of his 44 first cousins, at least half are fruit farmers. It's hard to get a word in, as every question we ask seems to get him excited about some other aspect of being an orchard farmer. By this time, we've got a lovely cider in our hands, talking about the history and inner workings of the business. Afterwards, we go visit the cidery itself, seeing giant square vats filled with what we will become the magical juice that we've all fell in love with, bubbling in perpetuity as CO2 escapes from the fermentation tanks. Then we finally go to see the orchard itself, walking along rows of small trees, the buzzing of bees all around us, and the wind blowing through the orchard, bringing that distinct farm smell that any small-town Midwesterner should know. Out of the three, cidery is my favorite. I can't wait to go back and buy some fresh-pressed cider, pick some of my own apples, and drink a hard cider while eating a glorious steak raised and butchered just a few miles down the road. I seem to have gotten lost along the way. I'm supposed to be talking about the modern-day relevance of cider, so let's get back on track here. Other than the gluten-free movement, there has to be something else that attributed to the rise in ciders. There's a lot of parallels that you can draw from craft breweries. Right now, around the same, right around the same time craft beer started to get big, the cider movement was happening too albeit not as crazy. I think the rise of both craft beer and craft cider has to do with a shift we as Americans have taken. We want to support our local business that contribute to our community, and beer and cider are perfect ways to support your local community and have a good time as well. No longer do people want their money going to big corporations who have nothing to do nothing but take from us. We want our money to go to fixing our roads and helping our schools and providing new opportunities for our young ones. How do you do that? Keep your money local. Give your money to the guy who grows his own apples and pretty much uses all of them to make other products that you want and need. But you may say, Shale, I don't like cider. It's too sweet. Well, yes, cider is naturally sweet, but it has just as much an array of flavors as beer and wine. Nowadays, many modern cideries are providing a scale on how sweet to dry the cider is. And a lot of places are adding different ingredients that could make a cider minty, sour, spicy, salty, or even bitter. I recently had a cider made with Britannomyces, which was funky and sour and barely even sweet. All these brewers are experimenting with a wider variety of apples, adjuncts, and yeast strains. Cider is for everybody, whether you're a hardcore craft beer drinker, a wine snob, or you just want to go into a beautiful valley and pick some apples. Alright, so now you know about the history and the modern day relevance of ciders. Um, now we're going to go into more of the 
business side of ciders and get into a little bit more detail. Um, originally, with this episode, I'd wanted to include some of um, Paul, the owner of Wilson's interview, just have little snippets throughout the episode. Um, but unfortunately, the audio quality of the interview was not as good as I had hoped. Um, so I figured it would be best to just put it all in one chunk for you so you can just listen to the whole interview. Um, that way you won't have to mess with, uh, your speakers very much. So here is our interview with Paul out at Wilson's Orchard, uh, all about the modern day relevance of, of their cidery, um, and what they're doing today. So do you, do you make all, all the ciders around right here or the- what is, like what is your um, list of duties as far as like the, oh, the cider part of it? God, no, I don't do any of the actual work. These guys do all the work. Um, <laughs> no, we have a we have a team that that puts the ciders together. We have a team that sort of manages the orchard. Okay. Um, and so basically, um, the orchard is is kind of set up. Um, we have two operations that. Alex probably told you about mm-hmm. um, and so a big chunk of our stuff is selling things directly to the public um, rather than sell it to Hy-Vee so our apples mm-hmm. um, we also raise sheep uh, and then the cider as much as possible we want to go directly to customers and that's what this cidery is all about right? yeah so that's part of that program just okay. cutting out the um, middleman because you yeah, do distro some out you know like yep. you, Yep, we, we we distribute a lot of it out. The the overwhelming majority of our hard cider is sent out. And even the sweet cider we probably sell well quite a bit more sold through high V's and other retailers than direct. But where we really want to shine and focus on is direct customers. Both because we believe uh, there's better margins. Obviously, like you said, you cut the middle person out. Um, but I think as important to us is the idea that customers become like accomplices in this business so that they know something about apples. They know about, yeah, if it gets too much rain, it sucks. If you don't get any rain, it sucks. If you get hail, it sucks. And they they kind of come to know, I like this variety. I like that variety. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then so the, the cider thing and the cidery is kind of a logical extension of that to where we can say, okay... We're making a rosé. This rosé is made with a particular apple called Burgundy. And Burgundy is an apple that almost nobody grows anymore. It was developed in New York. Um, but for our pies, it's like the number one apple. Um, it's very, very mm-hmm. sour. Um, but it's got tremendous apple kind of instincts. It's got, it's just got a lot of apple there, okay? Mm-hmm. And it also has, as the name would imply, an incredibly deep colored flesh, so much so that It'll ripen in about the third week of August. And that time of the year, of course, can be very hot. Mm-hmm. And it's not unusual to be able to sit in a row of burgundy and listen to them sizzle because they're, it's like a little solar collector and the really? apples will actually be steaming out. And, and those apples will be toast, of course. But it's just like a solar collector there. Um, it, but that color bleeds from the skin eventually into the flesh and hence you can get a nice reddish kind of hue. Yep. Yep. Very cool. Um, so 
everything that we're doing is kind of geared around the idea of being direct to customers. Uh, of course, we grow a lot more apples than we can sell that way, so we sell through high VEs or fairways or whatever, um, or you know, we, sit, we make a lot more hard cider than we can sell directly. But in a perfect world, we would sell everything directly. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot funner. Yeah. How has, um, have you noticed sales go up the past, you know, two or three years? I, I just, I think in general, the cider market has um, boomed along with like craft beer. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I don't think, you know, 15 years ago, you know, really nobody was making cider, uh, hard ciders anyway. In this country. Yeah. yeah. How long have you guys been making hard cider? So we're coming up on our third, our, our third year. Yeah. And like, what what kind of inspired that next step? So it's kind of a long story, but I'll I'll shorten it up. Um, <laughs> it's a podcast, Paul. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're here for stories. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Cheers. so um, I've grown up in the apple business and always wanted to do more direct value-added kind of stuff with apples growing them by the mega acre is not much fun it's just like industrial living okay mm -hmm. um, we say it's like actually neanderthal living at an industrial pace it's just kind of sucks you know so you've got all <laughs> these people working for you you got razor thin margins you got a hailstorm, and then you're done for the year right whereas you know, to me, the saner way to do it is have a little bit higher margin, sell direct, and, and go from that. So we started off when we came to Iowa, and we said that's what we want to do. We started the orchard, and then your value-added proposition is, okay, then you're going to take apples and sell them to people, and then you're going to take apples and make cider and sell it to people, and you're going to take apples and make pies and sell it to you, and that's a value-added proposition. But it's still three months of the year. Okay. Right. So we were always looking for something to extend the season. Now, yeah, now, way back when, in the 80s, no, in the 90s, in the early 90s, I was involved in a very big, one of the largest orchards in the United States. And, and we had it all. We had all the varieties that we should have. We had all the um, rootstocks we should have. We had the people. And we couldn't make any money. I mean, it was just that that time of the year was it was like the 80s for corn farmers, the 90s for apple farmers. We lost about 35 percent of the growers in Michigan, um, the second largest apple growing state in the union, um, just went out of business at that time because they just couldn't make any money. And there, the sort of reality of industrial apple farming sort of hit everybody in the face and me in particular because I wasn't having fun doing it anyways. So we started looking at other things to do. And one thing I did is I took a month and I spent it looking at England and the cider making industry in England. Um, mm -hmm. And I believed at that time hard cider had to come back. I mean, it just did. You know, hard cider used to be the American drink. It was, there was yeah. no question. There was no alcohol even come close, beer or otherwise. It was everybody's farm grew cider apples and those cider apples were used for making cider and then making vinegar and stuff like that. And that all kind of went away pre-prohibition but prohibition like drove the final nail in the coffin of that as it thing. did with just about everything else yeah so many things. Yes. exactly so um i had the idea that that would be a great thing at that time there was really one brand of cider making it in the united states and that was woodchuck 
and mm -hmm. if you ever had the original woodchuck, it was a very English site. It was dry, it was, it was very nice, and people hated it. I mean, it just didn't sell. And so the whole craft beer thing eventually sprang up and left cider behind because what was being made was ciders from England, and mm -hmm. that wasn't what the American public was really that interested in. So then we had wine coolers breeding a wine revolution, and we had, you know, the Samuel Adams breeding a craft beer revolution, and eventually you have Angry Orchard coming up producing a sweet wine cooler-like product, and that developed a following, very big following. You know, they had at one point, they had over 80 market share, 80% market share yeah. in the U.S., and it opened people's eyes to, to cider. Mm -hmm. Now, that whole side of the industry is kind of fading away. Not fading away. It's leveled off and, in fact, is declining some, whereas the craft cider thing is coming up and up and up, just like craft beer followed. Yeah, um, I think we looked in there's 701 cideries Probably. If, right if you I look this so. morning, mm -hmm. there's probably 708 by now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I yeah. hope so. Well, yeah. compared to the number of craft breweries, it's, yeah. it's, it's very interesting to think about uh, how many people are making beer versus how many people are making cider. So there's this huge demand for it, but fewer people producing the juice that people are demanding. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about the cider industry right now. Yeah. Well, and that... Of course, there's also a lot of changes that are going on. So we consider ourselves kind of like an estate cidery. So we grow apples and make cider. And But there's a lot of people that uh, take a different tack. Angry Orchard and a lot of these sort of mega operate, cider operations, they take apple cider, apple juice concentrate, which is somebody probably in China, since 85% of the apple juice concentrate in the world comes from China, um, they take apple juice press it and then they take the water out of it and it becomes a 72% sugar apple juice mm -hmm. and they can ship that stable across the ocean, bring it to uh, a factory, add water back to it, ferment it and make a cider. It, it makes it super easy. You know, sure. it's kind of like chemistry set stuff, you know, this many milliliters of that and this many milligrams of that and you blend her all together and put her in a bottle and slap a nice label on it and it'll about your uncle. So that's kind of become a big part of the cider of today. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it is I think the more interesting world of cider because um, unlike beer, I mean there's no producer that I know of. I mean there probably are some but there's relatively few if any beer producers that grow their own barley or grow their own yeah. wheat uh -huh. or like that. it's more like a wine you know you're growing your own fruit and you're getting uh, some idea about what that fruit uh tastes like what it can be used for and things mm -hmm. like that and um so cider they talk about being made like a wine sold like a beer and i think that kind of encapsulates where we're at in a lot of ways i like that you, line you have yeah. a you have a a product that is very much tied to the fruit it came from um you know if if you take i'm sure barley from tibet or barley from uh you know the san luis valley in in colorado it'd make a different product but boy if you take an apple from here or an apple from washington and make cider with it they're gonna be very very different yeah, yeah. and if you take a uh, golden russet or 
a Dabonier or one of these really intensely flavored cider apples and make a cider from it. Uh, so if you, you know, th there is some terrar, of course, around the idea of apples. We can grow apples here that taste a lot different in Minnesota or a yeah. lot different in Missouri. Oh. Just like grapes, I mean, it is very, very similar that way. Um, and that's the kind of interesting thing about ciders, you know, mm -hmm. so that a cider made in Iowa, of course, we feel like it's the best cider in the world, but, uh, you know, there's people in Michigan that'll say theirs is, and there's people in New York that'll say theirs is, and, and on and on. And the truth is they all will have special characteristics, even if they're made from the same apples. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is where's the place that it came from? What are those soils like? What's the temperatures like? Stuff like that. And the other is what kind of varieties are they using? So you can take apples that are made in the industrial model in Washington and you can press them into juice and they can make perfectly fine ciders. But that cider is going to be very different in character than a cider that's made with apples that are allowed to ripen fully, mm -hmm. pressed at the right time, and, and then you know allow that apple appleness to sort of express itself. And that, that, so there's a lot of different sort of pieces of this cider thing that are coming into fruition. And it's, it is different than the winery business in that apples are a commodity. Wine grapes are not a commodity. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people grow wine grapes to make wine. They don't grow them to eat. Yeah. Right? Sure. So, whereas a lot of cider is made from apples that are made to eat. So, you know, there's just a lot of different differences uh, and crossovers between cider, wine, and beer. And I think that's kind of one of the really fascinating things about it. And I think that's also one of the many reasons why um, it's booming in popularity because it appeals to near every single style of drinker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, whether you're a fan of beer or wine or even spirits. Yeah. It, brid it bridges the gap, definitely. Mm -hmm. um. I wanted to ask you a question about when you were talking earlier about the pressed uh, juice from mm -hmm. China mm -hmm. and then it being shipped over here and then reused. Is that higher sugar content? No, not necessarily. It's, it's um, because what you do is you take an apple. So we talk about bricks, but you can talk about it as percent sugar. It's about the same thing. So a regular old eating apple that you pick off the tree, if it's nicely ripened, it's going to have about 12% natural sugar in it. And maybe it's going to go as high as 14. Okay. So if you press that into juice, you end up with this 12% to 14% um, sweet product, right? Okay. All right. So, and then in China, they'll take that and they'll put it in a whopping big tank. And then they'll run it through a distiller, basically. A concentrator is just a distillation thing. But, okay. and, and so all they're doing is boiling, essentially, under vacuum, they're boiling the water out of this stuff. And it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. So it goes 2x, it becomes 24% sugar, and then it goes 3x, comes 36. Eventually, you take it all the way up to where it's really like the consistency of honey. It's 72% sugar. That's the oh, standard. Wow. Okay? So then it becomes, so you've lost six times your weight. So you, you don't have to ship, you know, six tons of juice over to America. You ship one ton of juice over to America because the water is the heavy part. So then sure. they use American water, put it back in. 
course, anybody knows, you know, you're going to boil something, you're going to lose something in the process. Yeah. And so uh, the difference isn't the sweetness because you, they adjust that. So before they go to ferment it, they're not going to ferment 72%. If they did, they'd end up with like 36% alcohol <laughs> cider, right? Which we'd all love, but it might be a little bit on the strong side. <laughs> sipping, sipping after dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so they're going to dilute it back with water to about 12% sugar, and then they're going to ferment it. So the difference in sweetness is not where the difference lies. The difference lies in the fact that any time you cook something that long and that hard, you're gonna lose some stuff because a lot of the really interesting flavors and stuff are alcohols. They're naturally occurring alcohols in the apple. They're not the kind to get you drunk, but they are very, very delicate. They flash off at lower temperatures than water. So when you're putting them in a distillation column, those are the things that flash off. And in fact, they flash off so many that the industry collects those, um, those alcohols, those flavors, esters they're called, and they distill them out and put them in a bottle and sell them as natural apple flavor. So when you buy the concentrate, you have, you have taken away all that flavor. What you really have is apple, sugar and of course there's malic acid and some other components of the flavor of apples but the real delicate flavors are all gone sure so that's the difference it's not that a natural apple has 12 percent sugar and uh, reconstituted uh, apple juice also can have 12 percent sugar but the flavor if you taste that reconstituted stuff i mean it's the difference between tasting fresh pressed apple cider you know that you get in the fall which is just apples, like yeah, these. or oh. yeah, that clarified, depectinized stuff mm -hmm. that you get at all these, and it just tastes like sweet, right? Yeah, so I mean, yeah. the difference is what happens pre-fermentation. Yes, exactly. With your with the stuff from concentrate sugar yeah. elements. Sure. Yeah. Huh. That's I mean, fascinating. That's, a, that's a, a huge difference right there. Yeah. And then again. Um, what apples you even if you're fresh pressing then what apples do you use and how do you do it that's where you know a lot of the differences between this craft producer and that craft producer so that, yeah. um, we had uh, when we've been doing research about ciders is um, what is like your personal take on uh, yeast because I know that a lot of uh, craft ciders now are like experimenting with like champagne yeast mm -hmm. I just had one the other day that used uh, Britannomyces so mm -hmm. had you know some of that very some real funk yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. do you guys use any like do you guys have like your own house yeast strain or um, does it just depend like uh, do you order it and you know it just depends on the the cider that you're making at that time yep. Yes, very much so. Um, I mean, most of our stuff is made with wine yeast. We don't use a lot, but there are cideries that use exclusively ale yeast and beer-type beer yeast. Um, they express themselves differently, and the kind of apples that you're using um, can kind of help dictate that. Also, the kind of cider yeah. that you're driving at can, can kind of lead you in that direction. Sure. We have done some wild-yeasted stuff. Um, okay. It... You know, and, and like in France and Spain, that's primarily what... So we, we tend to use a more English-style method. So English-style is, you know, like the bright, proper English would be. They're going to get crap right, right? They're going to say, okay, we're going to take this cider and we're going to add the yeast that we know and can control 
-hmm. and then we're going to produce a fermented product that we know and it's going to be replicatable and then you're going to add back some unfermented if if you're us anyways i mean our ciders we try to use strictly fruit juice so if Mm -hmm. it's if it's a cherry cider we're going to take fermented apple cider and add uh, cherry juice back to it if it's an apple cider we're not going to add sugar back to it because you can need a little bit of back sweetening. So we're going to back sweeten with, with unfermented sugar, unfermented sugar, unfermented apple juice. Yes, okay. Yeah. So that's how we, that's how we roll. Um, and if you're the British, that's how you make a, the British style, that's how you make that kind of a product. Now the French being French, they're not going that route. So they're going to use more wild yeasted stuff. And the cool thing about that is you end up with all this weird and wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. And the really sucky thing about it is you end up with all this weird and wonderful stuff. <laughs> right? Because you don't know what you're really yeah. going to come up with. For sure. Yeah. So um, I guess in today's market, of course, as we see in the craft beer thing, there's always going to be, you know, a, an appetite among some people for wild yeasted, barnyardy, mm-hmm. funky kind of flavors. And that's great. Um, we haven't done a lot of that. Where we do it is here in the cidery. So this is like our testing grounds right yeah. here. I mean, that, that rosé that came out of here where, we're, you know, we're messing around with stuff. Um, we'll do a raspberry one day and a wild yeasted god knows what another day and you know and some of this stuff is really quite nice some of it kind of funky you know not not so good Mm -hmm. and then we see how people like it and so that's kind of the advantage that we have there but yeah we tend to be more of that english style in 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 how we make ciders so i know you don't use all of your uh like you source out fruit yeah and uh I was saying that you get it from Michigan, is that? Yeah, so, yep, if we don't have enough fruit, we will bring that in from Michigan. And Michigan, I mean, that's where I grew up, so mm-hmm. I know these are either apples my brother or cousins grow. Um, so, so great. Yeah, and, I mean, it doesn't necessarily probably make them that much better. It's just I know that they're going to be decent, you know, that they're... Of that they're standard. Yeah, yeah sure. of a certain standard, yep. Um, so from say like a home brewer standpoint if I wanted to make a cider and yep. I needed to know where to source like good juice from yep. would you have any like recommendations or any tips in moving moving forward so I mean I guess generically speaking I mean if you're in this area I just say well get it from us then you know it's good um, but, <laughs> but do you source <laughs> juice out to people we do some we I mean we sell a lot of home brewers like we we do if you buy more than five gallons, we'll cut you some slack on on, a, on ciders and stuff like that. Um, we won't do, like if you say, well, I want five gallons of cider and I want you know, you to use one bushel of Jonathan's and a half a bushel of beer, you know, we don't go that far. We're, yeah. we're not that nice. You know? yeah. um, I just didn't know if you had uh, enough juice of your own to source out to other people. Oh, yeah, during the season we do. Okay. Yeah. What, what the reason we don't, we actually grow plenty of apples we just don't store them you know the the commercial what 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 we do is we started picking apples about last week and we'll continue to pick apples into early november we'll use up all of our apples by the end of december we don't want to invest in all of this kind of, well if you want to store apples for a long period of time you get into a different dimension and you really start to look at a, you start to look like 
a sort of industrial operation because yeah. number one, if you want to store apples for a long time, you can't pick them ripe. You got to pick them slightly ahead of ripe. And you're going to be putting them in this controlled atmosphere conditions, which there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's a big capital expense mm. um, to where you suck all the oxygen out of the room and you kind of hibernate the apples. Um, and or you're going to use this stuff, MCP, Smart Fresh stuff, which is basically, again, it just ways of making the apples go into a slumber. But that only works if they're not fully ripe. Mm. So um, for us, if we wanted to go down that route, we would we really focus on picking apples at what we think is the right time for that apple. Mm -hmm. um, if we had to go back and, and go a week earlier than that, it would affect the flavor of everything that we do. And so rather than do that, we basically use our apples up first thing, and then we start to depend on outside source stuff. Okay, okay. So it seems like it, you guys are trying to grow pretty organically, you know, like not have anything left over at the end of the year. If you plant something new, you want to be able to use that that season. Yeah. So yep. Very definitely. And I mean, we just planted five acres of apples specifically for making hard cider. That's our first foray into into that and those you know these are varieties that we know that we've worked with on an experimental basis we know that they're going to do a certain thing for us um so then after december mm -hmm. once you've you know picked your last apple on your property but you want to make hard cider in february yep. is that sourced juice we source apples and okay. press. Yeah. I was just curious about, because obviously the cider making business is a year-round business where the orchard business is not. Right. So how do you... Well, it's one of the advantages the we have. I mean, it, we talked about why we did the cider thing. And um, we wanted a way... Well, to be quite honest with you, I mean, part of it is a labor consideration. So if you want to hire a good crew of people and you're only offering work for three or four months of the year, it's really hard to keep good people. I mean, who, yeah. who, who, who can afford to do that? Um, sure. So the one thing the hard cider does is it allows us to have year-round sales, year-round cash flow, but probably yeah. as important or more important is it allows us to have year-round employment for people so yeah, that we can build a team that really, you know, can can do a good job day after day and we don't Absolutely. have to be constantly retraining a new crew every year like we do you know up here for the sales or operation of the orchard um, where we're only open three months a year the bakery you know it's just really hard to get people to come back year after year when sure. you're only offering three months of, of employment so that's that's been a real a real plus on the hard cider not to mention the fact that you know i mean we it also helps us clean up a lot of apples. It provides us with a, a source of this pumice. After we're done squeezing the apples, we're left with this, uh, you know, the flesh still has somewhere around 20% of its juice in it. Uh, machines are only so efficient. We've got skin and seeds and stuff like that. And we can feed that to our sheep and the neighbor's cows um, make really t great taste in meat. Mm -hmm. That meat can come over here and get put on the, on the menu, it's a, it's a kind of a nice round circle. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you have like a, like almost 100% like sustainable uh, farm here. Like you use everything and- Oh, that's know, the goal. I mean, that, it, yeah. that, that really is. And I mean, it, it, it makes sense on sustainable, 
sustainability on, on several levels. I mean, economically, it also makes a lot of sense because you're not wasting anything. Right. And then, you know, for the environment, I mean, this is, we, you know, I'm the fourth generation of my family being in the fruit business. And um, the first generation had livestock and apples. The second generation had less livestock and more apples. And the third generation went to completely apples. And the and my generation, you know, in, in my family is a big family, uh, 44 first cousins, and oh. about half of them still in the fruit business. And there is no interest whatsoever in having any livestock, let alone, I mean, even like they're going from having 20 varieties of apples that they grow to maybe six varieties of apples that they grow or five varieties of apples that they grow because they're just becoming more and more and more specialized. Mm -hmm. So I believe that's the wrong direction for agriculture and for um, society and for farmers because, I mean, it's just not very rewarding, I don't think. Well, and I think it's fascinating that you have, like, all of these different varieties of apples and usually, like, some of them were nearly extinct. And so you're, you're bringing things back, uh, things that once were. Yeah. And I think that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense too. Like, if some like a disease or something were to happen, you know, maybe certain apple varieties would be uh, more resistant to those than others. Yep. If you only have six types of apples and you lose one of those apples to a disease or something, that could that ruins your whole year. Yeah, I mean, perfect example of that is Japanese beetles. I mean, you can look right. out on the orchard right now. If you stand up there where you guys were before and look out on the orchard, you will see whole rows of trees that are brown from Japanese beetles. And right next to them will be rows that are perfectly green. Huh. Every one of those brown rows is Honeycrisp. Okay, Japanese beetles will attack Honeycrisp absolutely preferentially. There's Me no, too. They're, 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 yep. Me so, too. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I feel this beetle. We don't know if it's like cocaine in there or what's, what, it, what it is. But there's, I don't there's either. Some, yeah, it, it's amazing. Yeah, that's snow. so funny. And Debbie's yeah. left <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's some truth to that. Now, you know, in your point about old varieties and stuff like that, there's certainly a lot of truth to that. I mean, there's a lot of varieties that have been thrown aside, not because they didn't have great flavor, but because they don't look real pretty for the supermarkets or because they don't store well they don't mm -hmm. you know i mean when i was a kid all apples were refrigerated in supermarkets you go to the supermarket right now you won't find apples in the in the cooler section no. for real they'll be just out there in ambient temperature and that's because of all these advances in uh, modifications yes modifications and and things like that and some of this is is breeding for varieties that'll stay rock hard even if they're not refrigerated but there, yeah. there's there's choices there that, that we've made as a society to say we want that beautiful red apple or we want that rock hard apple um, rather than we want that apple that really delivers great flavor or great nutrition or something like that now having said that there's a lot of these old varieties that are worthless now, there's a lot of these old varieties that, that just they should have been eliminated you know there's 10,000 yeah. varieties of apples it's not possible that all these varieties taste great and do great things there's just mm -hmm. some of them that were you develop maybe for a certain climate or something like that but you get them here you know out of our 120 odd varieties there's 20 or so of them that i just think peace you know the world isn't a bad place if they don't have this apple <laughs> i came across this interesting uh 
video about the Red Delicious apple. All right. And the history of it and how, like, I, I don't think it's a good apple. Yeah. I think it's pretty boring. I don't really like the texture of it because I'm an apple lover. Like, oh, I okay. constantly eat apples at home, um, but I never buy those. And I came across this video that was like, this apple was ki kind of became this visual ideal mm. of what Americans think an apple should look like. So much so that they would set that out on the shelves as opposed to keeping it back like in the coolers like you were saying because it looks really good yeah. and that's really what pushed the popularity of it is that it's a marketable like visual image mm -hmm. not even necessarily the experience of eating it but that's like what americans think an apple should look like and that's why they're so yeah. popular i mean we, we eat first with our eyes you yeah. know that's that's how that works and you know if you ask a kid to draw an apple they draw a red looking apple and yeah. it looks like a regulation exactly that will stand yeah. up on its little legs on your countertop yeah. it's an interesting story the whole red delicious thing because of course it was a it was an iowa apple originally from peru iowa and uh and you know a tree that got cut down several times and then came back to life several times won a first prize at a state fair or at the at the uh, the world fair and then got but they couldn't find it. The tag from it got lost. It, it, it's a remarkable story. It but is. The, but the most interesting thing to me is kind of what you're saying, because that apple originally, what we used to, when I was a kid, we called it a common delicious. That apple is not red. It's a, and it tastes really good. It's very perfumey, and it has great flavor. I still, I'm with you. I'm not crazy about the texture of it. Yeah. But it does have really good flavor. It's quite sweet and very fragrant. But then they, they found, they, you know, some of these apples lend themselves to what we call sports. So you'll be growing this, this delicious tree, and it'll be producing delicious apples on all the branches, and they'll be about the same. And then there'll be one branch where they'll be just like redder, and it's noticeable. And if you take cuttings from that, you can propagate just that. Mm -hmm. And it, so it went, and so it went, and so it went to where we got redder and redder and redder. Nobody stopped to think about, does it taste the same? Does it still have the same smell? And it doesn't. This thing got thicker and thicker. Mm -hmm. The smell went away. And the flavor just became like saccharine. It's just like sweet with nothing behind it, right? The other interesting thing that they started to do is they, so they, you know, it had these very distinctive lobes on the bottom of a delicious apple. So they said, oh, that's cool. Let's make it not only redder, but let's stretch it out. So they found some growth regulators, and they actually made these apples in, in Chinese, they call it sugar, which means like snake apple, because it, it got to be so long that it, it doesn't really look like a round apple anymore. It got to yeah. be more like a little brick or something. Um, and so it's kind of emblematic of our whole society, I think, to where we, we got to breed this thing to be, you know, like you guys said, it's yeah. like the ideal, right? It's bright red, beautiful to look at, and, and, and you know, we got to make its features different, so we're going to accentuate the kind of intricacies that it had to where they become almost obscene in how, mm. you know, um, exaggerated they get. And so far from the original, yeah. the original yeah. fruit. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you can look at that and say that's our society, right? Yeah. I mean, beauty parlors, <laughs> the whole works, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I, anyway, I think apples, you know, as a part of the American identity are a really interesting part of our world. Um, hard cider as part of the American experience is also very interesting and it, it deserves to be recreated and, and, uh, and improved upon. I mean, because that is also part of our national identity is, you know, we started 
the craft beer thing and and uh, you know we were all in love with German beers that were just made with like three ingredients and you know and that was the ideal and da 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 and then all of a sudden people started throwing crazy amounts of hops in there and then they started putting chili peppers in there and then, and now that stuff's moving back across the pond and it's you know over in England and stuff yeah. um, they're producing <laughs> a lot of beers kind of like Americans and they're producing a lot of ciders like Americans even though when we first started they were like what the heck are you doing to our cider thing you know you're putting hops in it or you're you know flavoring it or you're doing this but you know it, it's it's a cool drink it's uh, there's some cool stuff absolutely yeah so if you're reaching for an apple to eat yourself yeah. well, what is your favorite apple well, I mean, it, it's so, it, it, I hate to be cliche, but I, it, I'll say this. It depends on the season, because my favorite apple is what's the best at that particular season. So, like, right now, we have a choice between a Lodi and a Lodi, and frankly, I don't like to eat Lodi's. They're just, it's like We sour. had a taste. Yeah. yeah. We had okay. a taste They're earlier. They're sour and starchy, and, you know, they make great applesauce. That's, that's kind of the lowest compliment you can give to an apple, right? Um, <laughs> sneak apple yeah but i can tell you i mean i just tasted a pristine the other day that's still about 10 days off two weeks off and it started to remind me of that that's like the first apple that you eat and you're like wow that's a good apple so yeah. during early season i like pristine later on i like i like tart so i like burgundy and then i like really tart i like some of the crab apples that come along i'm not a huge fan of honey crisp um i like uh I like Jonathan's a lot. You know, Jonathan is like the quintessential American apple. Um, but my probably my favorite of everything is Gold Rush. You know, end yeah. of the year. Uh, it's a really hard, crunchy apple. It's got a lot of zing to it. Um, I just, yeah, I, that's my go-to. If, if I had a choice, um, irregardless of season, that would be my apple. Okay. Nice. Yeah. We grow one um, called Song of September comes right after Honeycrisp and it's our second most popular apple and and I take great pride in that apple because it's neither great looking nor rock hard you know I mean this is like for years we were all in love with it's got to be red you know and then now we're in love with it's got to be like you can bounce it on the floor and it'll break the floor you know it's got to be so hard and this apple is neither but it has outstanding flavor but it's like a peach, you know, you, you get it. Mm. Today, it's perfect. Tomorrow, it's still good. The next day, it's starting to go soft. By day five, it's mush, you know? Yeah. So you gotta catch it like a peach just when it's ready to go. And, uh, and I, I love the fact that our customers appreciate that apple. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like, like this is like a family business that makes, that wants the customers to be a part of that family business. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, we encourage it. We have a, a very kind of uh, inclusive um, newsletter that we try to bring people in to what's going on in the orchard. Um, we try to get people here as many times. You know, we try to encourage people to come out, not just to pick apples, but just to get outside, you know, mm -hmm. put the iPads yeah. away for a while. Just just chill on that tech stuff. Come out here and just kind of enjoy yourself. Yeah, I... Like when I, I I'm a Hawkeye, and when I uh, lived in Iowa City, I lived right on, right by the Hilltop Tavern. All right. And so we regularly would come out here at least twice a year to pick apples and to pick pumpkins. Yeah. But there would be I don't know how many times it would be sitting around and be like, let's go get a turnover from Wilson's <laughs> Orchard because you guys make such great apple turnovers here. 
um, that I would like crave them sometimes. But it is, it's, it's such a great experience to come out here. Now you have like this space and you have other ways to engage your community. And that's well, I mean, we feel like the the local foods thing is critical to sort of our development as a as a culture. You know, I mean, it, it's like we we went so far away. It used to all be local foods, of course, and and then and then we got to where local was not cool at all, and mm-hmm. we we wanted the the bright shiny stuff from California or from New York or whatever. And now there's a, a kind of reassuring trend to say hey, there are a lot of valuable things to be said for stuff that comes from your back door. You get to know the people. The money goes round and round and round instead of once and gone. Um, And you get to know where your stuff is grown, right? You get to Mm -hmm. see, you know, are these guys trustworthy or not? I don't know where that freaking tomato in February has come from and how many people (laughs) were paid peanuts to pick it or you know how many pesticides were put on it or you know you just don't know what what happened along the way yeah well i think i think for a while as america we chose convenience over quality and i think that now we're starting to reverse that and we're starting to make an effort to put money back into the local people who are working really hard to produce really good things yeah and i think that's Orchard really uh, and you know local farmers markets are prime examples for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I do think we have started to pay more attention to quality, and and you know partly too, America has the cheapest food in the world. You know, I mean we we're just you know we have underpaid for food for so long that even today, even when you go to like a CSA or something, get your vegetables local, and you think, my gosh, that's twice the price of what you pay for in high V. This person is working their butt off, and they're earning 20, 25 grand a year, you know, just working themselves to a bone. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're still not paying enough for food. Well, and I think, like, when we talk about farmer's markets, there's a particular gentleman at our farmer's market that he's, like, the lettuce guy, the lettuce oh, guy, yeah, right. and he's got, like, 50 kinds of lettuce, and you go to, I, th- I feel like once you have his lettuce and then you go back to the store like in the mm. winter time and you have like the dole head yeah. You're like man i miss the lettuce guy because <laughs> yeah, yeah. not only do i have all of these different types and i can actually buy lettuce that like does something good for my body um i can also support somebody who lives 15 miles away from me mm-hmm. which is in our agricultural community that's perfect yeah i felt the same way with uh, there's a mushroom guy at the farmer's market as well and i was like <laughs> you know what i've always loved mushrooms but i didn't realize how much i love mushrooms until i tried these ones and now it's like man i don't even want to go to Heidi. i don't want to i don't want to go buy you know baby bellas anymore i want to go to that guy and buy like lion's mane mushrooms or like button mushrooms because mm-hmm. they're just so good and just like at farmer's markets as you were describing uh, with your favorite like choice of apple that what you can get in June versus what you can get near the end of the season may change and that's great for um, adventurous palates yeah. to not only support local community but get to try new things that you don't get to buy at Hy-Vee right. and a good educational experience as well because if you're talking to people who are growing them it's like oh do you have this this particular apple well no that apple's not, a, a not in season anymore but let's get to set up with something that's can be really good in season that might have some similar qualities to that apple. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, 
Well, thank, thank you so much. Oh, no, thanks. Sorry to keep you guys. And uh, no, yeah. I could sit here all day and talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, you're a great storyteller. Your information well, is fascinating. I like to talk, but I also have a freezer that I'm working. Right. Yes, about. you do. <laughs> but I do. I want to compliment you because I feel like we've had a lot of ciders um, over the years, and. I think that you guys have always been a fantastic business, and the cider that you're producing now is some of the best stuff that I've had. Well, thank so, you. So, like, keep it up, and I, I, as a cider fan and an Apple fan, I thank you. Well, <laughs> you're, you're most welcome. I appreciate the, the support. Um, I, all I'll say is we're not resting on our laurels. I mean, we, we don't think we're anywhere as close to producing the, the ciders that um, we can produce, and some of that is involved in, I mean, very much so involved um, especially on the straight apple side, getting the right apples and, and making that product. I mean, we've made some fantastic ciders that I'm excited to get out. We just don't have enough apples to support it just yet. But yeah, yeah stay tuned, I guess. Yeah. Someday, you yeah. will. Yeah. I have yeah. faith in you, man. You're doing a great job. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so we're sitting here in the, this is like the bar area. So like when you guys open the orchard, what are the, what are the hours? So, okay, so the orchard itself is open 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day of the week. Okay. April 1st until the end of October. So August those three months. Huh? He said April, August. Oh, August, sorry. August the 1st until <laughs> yeah. October the 31st. Um, so those three months were open 10 to 6 every day. Um, the cidery has its own hours, and it's not open in January, but otherwise for those 11 months from February the 1st until the end of December, they're open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for dinner. So that's 5 to 9. Uh, they're open for brunch from 10 to 2. So basically it's a dinner for most of the week and then a brunch on Sunday. But, okay. you know, the best thing to do is get online, uh, repcreekcidery.com or wilsonsorchard.com. Um, everything's kind of tied together, jumbled together, and Alex does a fantastic job getting us on Instagram and Facebook and all that good Absolutely. stuff. All right, awesome. Excellent. Well, we'll let you get back to the freezer. All right, thanks. Thank so Great much. to meet you guys. Yeah. All right, so we've gone through the history. We've gone through the modern-day relevance. Uh, we've, we've both learned a lot about ciders in this past month. Um, what are you excited for next as far as ciders go in your, in your cider path? Um, I think in my cider path, what I'm excited about is just continuing to try different different things that are being made in this country, but also like keeping my eye out for more traditional styles and trying things from other countries, you know? Mm -hmm. I would love to try a cider from northern Spain. Same. You know, like I would love to try a cider from certain parts of France. And to be able to compare and contrast, like, historically what they've been doing versus, like, the craft movement today in our country. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's the kind of the same shift for me, too. Like, now whenever I go to, like, a new city or a new place, like, I'm definitely going to be thinking about if there's any cideries in the area. Because I definitely want to go see those cideries and see what they're doing and try them out. Because it's so, it's so open you know, it's it's such an, a broad category um, that I definitely want to see what other people are doing outside of what we can get here in the Quad Cities. Yeah, and I think I will probably pay more attention to, like, the cider selection at different, like, liquor stores, too. You know, mm -hmm. whenever I go out of town, I try and go to 
a place that spells that sells various spirits and almost always i focus on like lately it's been like wines and different like amaros or Mm -hmm. um you know bitters things like that but now i'm definitely going to pay more attention to the cider selection they have too yeah absolutely i i am interested to see where cider's gonna go and like where it's gonna lean towards like is it gonna lean towards a more beer centric crowd uh as far as like the adjunct ingredients in it or is it gonna lean more towards the wine crowd like you know with the rosé cider that uh i tried at at wilson's so i'll be interested to see where where cideries go from from here and how like the demand grows Mm -hmm. and who is demanding the products exactly yeah Yeah. um you know i'm just really excited i'm really i was just really blown away by all the stuff that i didn't know about ciders that's again one of the great things about this industry is you can never know everything no and i think that's when i sell ciders by the can or by the bottle that's one of the things that i talk about is that like it's not just woodchuck anymore mm-hmm. you know there's so much more it's such a more complex beverage than i had ever really truly known until the last month that should be like some cideries like advertising like it's not just woodchuck anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> it's not just sweetheart apple juice yeah it's so much more complex and diverse of a of a category of beverage mm-hmm. yeah and people are as we've learned, pushing the boundaries all over the place nowadays. Um, so I think that pretty much wraps up our, our show for for this month. Um, later today, me and Debbie are going to be talking about uh, what we're going to do for, for August as far as our show. So uh, stay tuned for that. So we have a couple ideas that you know we've been throwing around. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, Two Seats at the Bar. My name is Shale Sage. And I'm Debbie Davis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>